Welcome to God is Open. I'm your host, Christopher Fisher. Today on God is Open, we're going to be covering this little video, this uh, three-minute video, If God Knows Everything, How Did Moses Change God's Mind? And it's by this group called Cross-Examined. It seems to me that this group, they go around answering the tough questions. They seem to be in some sort of auditorium setting. And that whoever wants to come to the microphone and ask whatever question, uh, that's what they like to do. And we got a good friend, Caleb, and he makes a really good point. He's not like a Bible scholar or anything, but he, he asks about God's emotions. When we read the Bible, God's emotions are incredibly intense. God sees something and reacts. God, God sees that man has become wicked. He becomes deeply regretful. Not, not even in what man does, but in his own actions. God sees that Israel rebels. He becomes uh, very frustrated or very angry. Uh, sometimes he gives up in exasperation. The emotions of God run intensely throughout the Bible, which doesn't make sense with a God who knows the future exhaustively in every detail. These things should not be a surprise to him. They, they, they shouldn't be triggering to his emotions to the extent that we see in the Bible. And uh, let's see how our friends here at Cross Examines answers this. So we'll, we'll kind of skip ahead. Their intro is pretty loud, so we'll just jump right into okay, it. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. What's your name? Caleb. Hey, Caleb, how are you? The gentleman who asked the son question is my dad. Oh. Cliff over there. Hey, Dad. How you doing? So, obviously, he's a Christian, and mm -hmm. I'm not quite sure what I am. I've had a constant kind of struggle my whole life with what I believe, but um, so I'm not well-versed in or chaptered in the Bible. Mm -hmm. um, my question was, there's, I believe, several times in the Bible where it seems like God gets legitimately angry yeah. at people at some point over slaves with the plague and kind of along the lines of a previous question if he knows what's going to happen mm -hmm. and he's an all-loving being right. is this like pure emotional anger or i mean he should have expected it yeah. so oh, excellent it question yeah. this is a good question reaction or yeah it's an excellent question caleb we need to remember you can stay there because we may interact a little bit we need to remember that the bible is written from an observer perspective so there are times when it appears say God is angry with Israel and he's going to wipe Israel out. And then Moses goes and prays and apparently changes God's mind from our perspective, right? So one thing I like about what's going on here is that the question asker, he doesn't know the Bible too well. And so the presenter is giving the guy an example that they could latch on to that uh, is something concrete that we could actually deal with. Now, his mistake, though, is that he turns to Exodus 32. And let's see, hear his reimagining of Exodus 32, the framework behind what's going on in that chapter. Right. But in reality, what's going on is that God always knew that Moses would pray and he always knew that he would relent based on what Moses had done. It's written from an observer perspective. And that's the way we do things as well. So let's, let's pause him right there. So he's saying the text in Exodus 32 looks like that God doesn't know what's going on there. Looks like God's reacting to new information. Looks like God's mind is changing. But it's not actually the case because uh, that perspective is not God's perspective we're reading from. Which, which is interesting. What in the text, what in context tells you that what, what's being described there is not the accurate uh, rendering of the situation, that the narrator is not giving the outsider perspective already, that Moses doesn't understand the outsider perspective, that it should be read in light of a different outsider perspective other than the narrator, which is already present there, and that the insider perspective is not accurate. 
There's nothing. What what he's doing here is he's trying to give a new framework to reread a text without any internal justification of that rereading. And that that's an incredibly invalid way to do things. And it's it's a mechanism. It's a mechanism for undermining the text and holding your theology in spite of the textual evidence that you are interacting with. Just read the Bible in light of your presuppositional Theology. Yeah, you, you bring your theology to the text rather than get your theology from the text is what he is proposing we do. And that's how we deal with these situations throughout the Bible, which we experience time and time again, where God doesn't expect something or God uh, is uh, encounters something new and has an emotional guttural reaction or an intense emotional response. And he says, oh, it's all about perspective. You just have to understand this is Moses' perspective. And and does the text read like that? We'll turn to Exodus 32 and we'll see if this is written from Moses' perspective. There's dialogue that's involved. Uh, did the dialogue actually occur? Um, did, were these things actually said by God or was that fabricated? Was, was uh, Moses hallucinating? Was this a you know, God had these eternal plans and the dialogue was just made up on the spot because it's Moses' perspective. And this is a fabricated event with with loose grasp of uh, reality, what, which occurred. How does God describe his own emotions in the dialogue in which God states things, right? Uh, do, do we care? Do we care about what God says about himself? All good questions, all good questions. But he says it, it's all relative to the observer. And let's let's hear his analogy. In fact, you read in the Bible that um, the sun rises and the sun sets. Well, we know it doesn't really do that, right? I mean, Dewey, Dewey, this is the worst argument Christians ever make. They, they do it all the time where it's like, the sun doesn't rise, so it's, you know, it's a perspective. Uh, that's, that's not actually true. So let, let's turn to this uh, bad astronomy uh, it's bad astronomy blog. You know, he's being like clever with his name, but he's a very famous astronomer, Phil Plate. And he talks about geocentricism and he basically makes the argument that geocentricism is a valid frame of reference because guess what? In space, there is no absolute frames of references. So if you have two spaceships and they're moving towards each other or, or not, you don't know if the distance between them is decreasing at 10 miles an hour. You don't know if one's moving and the other stationary you don't know if this one's moving at three miles an hour and this one's moving at seven miles an hour. You just don't know. You have to arbitrarily pick a frame of reference. And guess what? The sun is a pretty easy frame of reference when you're dealing with things in the solar system. But once you get larger or smaller than that, it's not a very useful frame of reference. It's not a useful frame of reference for talking about movement in the universe. And it's definitely not a very useful frame of reference for talking about any movement on this earth. So I'm driving a car. I'm going 25 miles an hour. That's relative to the earth. And so do we add on the speed that the earth is moving around the sun to my 25 miles an hour car driving to get an accurate speed of my car? Uh, and then if I'm driving counter to the earth rotation, if you're a flat earther, do you just kind of skip a part? You know, skip this part, go back to, uh, to keep scrolling until we get to that uh, YouTube channel displayed again. Uh, then you'll skip this little rat. But uh, then if you're driving against the rotation of the earth, then you you subtract that speed from the total. No, no. Rational people pick the easiest point of reference for things that they're talking about. If you're jogging and you're on a plane, uh, you don't say I'm jogging five miles an hour and then you add on the plane speed to the, the speed you're jogging. You're using the, the plane as your point of reference. You know, this is normally how people interact. It's not it's not how this guy claims that there's an absolute 
frame of reference in the sun, and, and it's incorrect to say the sun revolves around the Earth. That's not true. You don't know. You, you don't. You don't know physics. But uh, that's forgivable. That's forgivable. But I just. I just don't like. I don't like this example. It's the the worst example. Christian. Not not the worst example. I'm being. I'm being hyperbolic. But it's a terrible example. Uh, but the point itself may be valid with a different illusion. But whether it's relevant to Exodus 32 or not, that's a different question. I mean, we know that we're spinning and the, we're going around the sun and, and the sun isn't moving around us. Are we? We're going around the sun. Is that true? That's how the sun rises and sunsets. But if you go home tonight and you watch the news and you watch the, the weatherman on there, the meteorologist, Dr. So-and-so, will say sunrise tomorrow, 652. He doesn't say earth rotation will become apparent. At 6.52. The whole audience is just eating we this We use so. observational language, and the Bible uses it the same way. So God is not changing. We're changing. And God is always angry with sin, and he's always pleased with trust in him. Gross. Oh, that's so funny that he uses Exodus 32. Did the people repent in Exodus 32? Did, did, I, did I miss something? Did, did the people positionally change according to God? Or... Or what happened was uh, a, one of the righteous people, God's righteous people, interceded for the wicked, and then God decided not to punish the wicked, and he his anger subsided because they were interceded for on behalf of the righteous. This is the funny thing. A lot of times in the Bible, you see God changing for his own sake. And it, it, actually, there's references to this chapter in which God says, I repented for my own name's sake. It's not a positional change with man. It's an internal change within God that's being happening inside of God, irrespective to any changes in any human beings for God's own sake. This this is I, it's God saying it. It's it's a quote by God. So I, I don't know how much more clear in the text you can get that this is an internal change internal to God and uh, incompatible with concepts such as immutability. And what happens is we move from one aspect of God, wrath, when we're in sin, and then we move into grace when we trust in him for his free gift. Yeah, the people didn't repent. They were still evil. And then, then uh, the exact same events, the exact same sequence of events happens right before they enter the promised land where God seeks to kill them again. And then they're interceded for again on the behalf of Moses. And uh, they're saved again for God's name's sake. And not their own sake, not their own repentance. It wasn't a positional change. It was truly, legitimately, God repenting for his own name's sake. Not based on anything the people did. Not based on any position that the people had attained. Oh, oh I, I, so here's, here's what they like to do. They, they don't like to deal with the details of their evidences. They, they like to give this uh, kind of a straw man type overview of the passages they're dealing with. And then they like to throw out a plausible explanation that if you're not familiar with the details of the text, you automatically say, oh, that, that kind of sounds about right. And then their audience, they, they clap, they go along with it. But, but the details of the text just do not jive. They do not line up with his explanation. And uh, you, you won't see him di deep diving into those details. They're, they're very unsettling for his position. It's like uh, if you're riding a bike against the wind, uh, you say the wind is against me. When you turn around and go the other way, you say the wind is for me. Who changed, the wind or you? 
you change. Interpretation <laughs> the, the wind's yes. changing, it, right? The Bible's written from frequently an anthropomorphic perspective, our perspective, not necessarily God's. I appreciate it. All right, thank you so much, Caleb. So you, you can't trust what the Bible says. Uh, there, there's, there's nothing in the text that indicates the true nature of the Bible. You just have to approach the Bible with your own theology, and that's how you know what it says. Uh, I, I, I'm sure Caleb uh, understands some of the, these things. I'm sure he said, well, that, that probably didn't quite explain um, the, the problems with the text that you're quoting. Now let's pull up Exodus 32 and look at a couple of key features of that that just do not line up to this Positional change. There's, you know, prayer is for our sake and not for God. It doesn't change God. Prayer changes us. You know, that type of mentality. That that's just not a biblical mentality. And it's 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 forced on the text because people like to introduce concepts such as immutability and omniscience of all future events, which are not biblical values. That the biblical authors did not care. Did not care. As this guy, this guy basically admits that they did not care about his value structure that he's importing onto the text. Because if they cared about that value structure, they wouldn't write the stories as if that value structure was not embedded in those stories. Oh, it's so funny. It's so funny. And so here's the text. We're, we're at Exodus 32. We'll start at about verse 9. There's, there's a dialogue. Moses is talking to Yahweh, and Yahweh says, I have seen this people, and behold, it is a stiff-necked people. You know, they don't change. You know, uh, he's saying, I, I've, I've noticed that these people, they don't listen to me. They don't change. Ah, I, and I'm mad. He says, therefore, let me alone, that my wrath may burn hot against them. So God's saying he has wrath, and that it's going to burn hot, because... He has seen that this is a stiff-necked people and they're rejecting him. That I may consume them in order that I may make a great nation of you. So he's like, leave me alone and so I can do these things. And the, the narrative that our friend here at uh, Cross-Examined wants to introduce is God eternally foreknew that he would never do these things that he says he's going to do. He says, I'm going to burn hot in my wrath. I'm going to consume them. I'm going to make a new nation of you. Things which never happen, things which never occurred because Moses intercedes. And so God is just outright lying that he has emotions, so lying that he has emotions and that uh, he's going to consume them, that he's going to make a new nation out of Moses. These are just things that aren't true in this narrative. And these are in the context of a quote by Yahweh. So is Moses, is Moses hearing these things? Did this event actually happen? Is this a fabricated event that Moses is just recounting in his mind what he, what he kind of thinks happened? Uh, you know, what's going on here? Was, is this a historical narrative is the question. Did God actually mean what he's saying or is he just lying or is the text fabricated? Yeah, you, you got those options. But Moses implored the Lord his God and said, O Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people, whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt with great powder and a mighty hand? So the, a couple things of note. So Moses, not only is he writing Exodus, uh, presumably, but he's also, also a character in the text. And Moses in the text, what does he believe about God? Does he believe the same things about God that our cross-examined guy does? Or... Let's say our cross-examined guy, he's in this situation, and he's in the place of Moses. He would say, oh, Lord, uh, just look in the future and tell me whatever it is that I should be doing. Um, you know, uh, tell me what the right answer is. Lord, your will be done. 
you you know everything uh my my input into the situation is worthless and uh, do whatever you think is the most beneficial based on your foreknowledge of all events you know that that's how you would act with someone who knows the future imagine like your wife knew the entire future she knew every every thought on your mind every action that will happen you're not going to debate with her you're not going to say she's not going to say hey we should go bring the kids to uh, McDonald's today, you're not going to start debating against her. No, we shouldn't do that. No, she's she's got the superior knowledge of the future situation, the outcomes that are going to result uh, at, for all these things. You know, if Moses thinks this is a, a bad idea that God kills all these people and and he gives reasons for it. One, one reason which is very telling is that it's going to make God look bad. He's he's arguing that God's going to impugn his his uh, PR his, his uh, public relations, his the perception of him by these pagan nations, if he goes about and does this, you know? And to God, it seems to be that God accepts this argument, these cascading lists of arguments that, that would never be made in a closed system. Uh, Augustine would never be making these arguments for God to change, you know? Uh, people who believe that God has the entire world controlled meticulously would never be making these arguments. Uh, these are arguments from a point of perspective of someone who's an open theist, someone who's a biblical open theist, someone who who just believes in a traditional Yahwehistic religion. You know, there's 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 no room for the metaphysics that our cross-examined guy wants to bring to the text. And the Lord relented from the disaster he had spoken of bringing on his people so god says he's going to do something god doesn't do it you know god repents and this is not the only place that comments on this text you know we got a narrator here that is our third party outsider perspective and so what 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 is this cross-examined guy's argument that there's a fourth third party that there's there's someone outside this story who needs to reread the story that's already being recounted by a narrator to the people uh, yeah, that, that's his argument. That's a really bad argument. It's, it's, it doesn't hold any water. That's a fabrication, and it gives unlimited flexibility to the text. I mean, anyone could say that. There could be some Gnostic that comes and says, all this is human perspective. What this was is uh, Moses is actually interacting with a false god who didn't actually create the universe, create reality. He's not the ultimate one. He's just a demi-urge. He's just a false creator god that Moses is interacting with. These, these are actual Gnostic arguments. The Gnostics would talk like this about the Old Testament, that what's being portrayed isn't actually what's going on because you have to understand the meta-narrative in order to interpret the text in that meta-narrative of the false creator God, the Demi-Urge. So Psalms 106 looks back on this incident, and it's it's a further commentary. So this is our first party perspective, someone commenting outside of the immediate text, outside of the immediate author on the text about what the text is about. And let's see what this author, oh, in 106, it's uh, what, David? Possibly David, possibly David. But he says, therefore he said he would destroy them had not Moses, his chosen one, stood in the breach before him to turn away his wrath from destroying them. And so Moses is, is the implement. Moses is the reason that God changed and did not do what he said he would do. This is a common occurrence. Psalms 106.23. There's more commentary on this. This is not it. So there's maybe a fifth voice. Maybe this fifth voice will have our cross-examined interpretation. Or, or if, if five different voices, uh, the immediate characters in the text, you know, uh, God and Moses, and then on top of that, the narrator in Exodus, and then furthermore, this uh, commentator in the Psalms. What about in Ezekiel? What does the commentator there say? 
But the house of Israel rebelled against me in the wilderness. This is Ezekiel 20, 13. They did not walk in my statutes, but rejected my rules, by which, if a person does them, he shall live, and my Sabbath state shall be greatly profaned. Then I said I would pour out my wrath upon them in the wilderness to make a full end of them. But I acted for my for the sake of my name, that it should not be profaned in the sight of the nations, in whose sight I had brought them out. So remember Moses' argument. Moses said, if you kill these people, you're going to look really bad to the Egyptians. They're going to think you're a death cult. And in Ezekiel, this is God commentating on the events that happened in Exodus. God's narrative. God is the commentator. He's our fifth commentator on this situation. And again, not cross-examines position on this. His position does not exist. He's literally fabricating a mechanism by which he could just ignore any part of the Bible he doesn't like. And he he ignores God on this. He, he Several times he ignores God. He ignores God in the story. He, no, he ignores uh, Moses in the story. He, he, he ignores Moses as commentator. He ignores the psalmist commentating on this. And he ignores both Ezekiel and God and Ezekiel commentating on this. Uh, he disagrees with every single one of their position on this. And he says, oh, they, they secretly, they really agree with me because I have this uh, I have this system in place where my theology is not falsifiable. There is zero text, zero narratives that could ever undermine the theology I bring to the text. And and on top of that, anyone could do that. My same my same methodology, any, any Gnostic could come to the text and say, oh, the text just means secretly my Gnostic beliefs that I bring to the text. I'm not saying this guy's a Gnostic or anything like that, but it's just an example of how people can mistreat the text in such a way that that uh, it gives unlimited flexibility to mistreatment of the text. It's it's not a historical, it, it, it doesn't, it doesn't care about the text. It's not treating the text with integrity. And that's what we should do. If, if, if we're Christians, we care about the Bible, we, we want to know what the Bible says and what the Bible teaches, we shouldn't just fabricate our own narratives that don't exist in the text in order to undermine things that are things that don't uh, quite align with our theology. We need, we need to take the good and bad. We, if, if we're systematizing, we have to make it work without just proof texting. Or verse trumping. Verse trumping is what I'm looking for, where, oh, this verse, uh, it, it takes precedence over these verses, and you have to interpret this verse in light of these verses. None of that. Treat the text with integrity, with honesty. See what's going on. What kind of genre is happening in the text? Uh, what What is meant by the author? Did the events actually happen? And if not, why not? You know, I mean, I someone can make the case that Job is all maybe a fable. Uh, it's 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 not history. It's a fable. You, you could you could make that case, and it could be a compelling case. I don't think that case could be made for Exodus thirty-two. I think I think it's definitely supposed to be taken as as a historical that there's actually this conversation, and the Israelites are to believe that this is Yahweh. This is Yahweh's words in action. These are things that Yahweh believes, that he thinks, that, that uh, Exodus is an accurate representation of God. Again, the Bible is advocacy. The biggest problem within Israel is worshiping these false gods. And so the Bible advocates the true God over the false gods. So just pretending the Bible doesn't exist and explaining away all the thoughts, actions, motivations of Yahweh within the text is undermining the entire purpose of the Bible is to explain the true God as opposed to the false gods. It does damage to the text. So I don't like a cross-examines explanation. I don't think it has explanatory power. I don't think he has thought very in-depth about the ramifications and, and the, how arbitrary and non-persuasive his arguments are. And I think his audience really 
are very superficial in just accepting and you know clapping for you know his, his they they hear, heard the answer that they would like to hear because it affirms their priors anyways uh that's about it for this episode uh, hit a like leave a comment start a thread on the god is open facebook page thank you for listening